Hey artists, special announcement alert. It's that time of the year when a Halifax-based magazine called The Coast asked their readers to nominate who they feel are the best in various categories in the city. And I need your help. I'm looking for a nomination in three different categories. Hey, why not, right? If you're a fan of what I do, please go to bestofhalifax.com. Select News and Media and then Best Podcast, and enter in Art Pays Me. And next category, go to Fashion, Best Fashion Designer, and you can just put my name in, Dwayne Jones. And then for Culture, I'm also looking for Best Visual Artist. So go on to Culture, Best Visual Artist, and enter my name, Dwayne Jones. If you could do this, I would greatly appreciate it. Hell, you know what? Send me a screen cap of your nomination and I'll send you a gift straight from artpaysme.com. Problem is, there's a deadline for this. So if you could do this by July 15th, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks again, peeps. Much love. Now let's get into the episode. What up, artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast, and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity. And, you know, maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. Today we have Eric Stotts. He is an architect. Uh, first architect for the Art Pays Me podcast, and um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one. And, you know, architecture is one of those things that as I went to school for graphic design, and it was something that we always kind of put up there. And a lot of us seem to secretly want to be architects or industrial designers. So um, welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Dwayne. Appreciate it. So, um, yeah, you were just telling me you're actually in, uh, how do you pronounce it? Peoria? Peoria. Yeah. Peoria, um, Peoria Illinois. And, and that's where you grew up? That's right. Yeah, I was born here in Peoria and um, I'm just home for a quick visit with my folks who still live here and just a bit of a recharge. And I, I like to keep coming back. Well, not only for family, but also it's a really interesting city with like a really rich history, kind of industrial history. Um, and I was like keeping track of kind of what's going on uh, development wise, you know, and architecture wise. Um, so I've seen some cool stuff. It seems like there's a lot of neat things that continue to happen. And I uh, just like to keep my finger on the pulse a little bit. Right. So it's like, it's continually evolving and like sort of every time you go there, you would say? I'd say so. I mean, it's a, just a really, really short history of it. It's uh, Peoria is um, it's on the Illinois River. It's kind of central Illinois. And it's got a rich kind of um, industrial past. Caterpillar Tractor is headquartered here. Um, and uh, my dad worked at Caterpillar um, on the line for well over 30 years. He's retired now. But there was a, a lot of industry here and also a lot of distilling, actually. At one point, uh, most of the whiskey distilled in the world was actually distilled here in Peoria. 
Uh, so there's now we're seeing kind of a resurgence locally. I was just out last night, actually, of um, breweries. And um, I saw that the city council just approved a distillery as well to kind of uh, take over some of all of this amazing industrial architecture that still exists, you know, kind of empty uh, down on the waterfront. And artists, you know, like happens in so many places, you know, kind of artists and entrepreneurs are starting slowly to kind of, you know, reinsert themselves in that, in, in that place, you know, invest in it, you know, and to kind of build it up. Um, so it's really, you know, it's, it's one of those classic situations where, you know, kind of, you, you look to the arts, you know, to kind of, uh, begin the redevelopment of a place and, uh, w which I think is really fantastic. And I think, it, you know, it's happening everywhere. It's happening a lot in Halifax too, right? Mm. Yeah. That's actually very interesting. It, I'd be, I'm, I'm going to have to Google and then look up some of what's going on because I'm really interested to see what happens when a slate gets almost wiped clean and then uh, people have to come back and re-envision it. Um, exactly. That's, that's fascinating. So, so you're an architect. What do you love most about being an architect? Well, there's a lot of things, but I'd say if I had to pick one, I've been fortunate in kind of the breadth of the, the types of projects and the, the places that I've worked. So I'd say it's the variety of the experience. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked, uh, I, I went to school at Rice University in Houston. So that's where I got my architecture degree. Um, so, but I've worked in Houston. I moved to Boston after I graduated in the, the mid nineties and I worked there. Uh, I, and then I, I spent a year in Paris, actually working for uh, Renzo Piano, who's internationally, you know, uh, internationally known, probably, you know, one of the greatest architects still living um, of the 20th century and now the 21st century. So wow. I had an experience to be, you know, exposed to architecture on kind of the highest level. And um, then I moved to California and then I've been in Halifax for 15 years and I've had the opportunity to work with um good firms there. Um, and, um, as you mentioned, Omar at the beginning, um, Omar Gandhi, I'm good friends with Omar and I have a chance to collaborate with him quite a bit now. Mm. And, but it's, it's that, that, that kind of variety of experience that really excites me. And architecture is an interesting kind of discipline in that it's, it really is kind of a hybrid. Like as a kid, I was always really interested in science. I still continue to be but I also loved art, you know, mm -hmm. and and so for me it was just this 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 fusion of the two, you know, kind of the uh, the scientific method with artistic thinking, you know, with sociology and archaeology and anthropology and all these other things kind of sprinkled in. Uh, that really, I, I think it just it it kind of ticks all the boxes for me as kind of a person and a professional. Hmm. Yeah, that's that is very interesting because like you're you're creating places where humans actually have to live and function and work and all the number of things that we do. So sociology and all those other things would really apply. That's that's exactly right. And I, and I think that that's what distinguishes it for me anyway. Uh, well, well, you know, it's, you know, at some point, you know, it's been termed, you know, architecture has been termed kind of the mother of the arts. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's certainly, there's a craft element to it that I really appreciate. You know, I like beautiful things <laughs> like anybody, right. You know, and, and you would know as an artist, right. Uh, you know, that's, that's your aspiration is to create these things. But I think there's also this kind of social responsibility and I I'd say, you know, kind of ecological responsibility too, you know, like your, our media that we're working with as architects, you know, it's natural resources, you know, it's, it's communities, it's people, you know, it's, it's all of these things that are really, really critical, you know, on the human level, you know, and kind of on the natural level, you know, so like my palette, you know, as an architect is, you know, there's big ramifications for how I responsibly use that media, right? You know, I have to be thinking about the end user. I have to be thinking about society. I have to be thinking about you know, how is the person and the persons that are using these buildings, you know, how are they going to interrelate with that? You know, how is this going to be in 50 years, you know, in a hundred years, you know, like what's its impact on the its surroundings, you know, kind of economically and all of these things. And so it's, it's that kind of uh, comprehensiveness of it. That's at times very, kind of sobering and, and, uh, scary, but at the same time, exhilarating, um, that yeah, just really, uh, I think, you know, I just think it's, I'm well suited for that kind of challenge. Mm. So, so you've, you've had this experience of being in Europe and I, I got to go to Paris when I was in high school and cool. what struck me is, that was the first time I was in a place that just had such a rich history that mm-hmm. seemed to have gone on for a very a long time. So from an architectural standpoint, like how does how do those like older constructions stand? Like do they seem to stand the test of time? And what was it like um looking at maybe newer interpretations of architecture in that city and in that world that that's a that's a fantastic question and i mean i'm going to be one of thousands that are going to attempt to answer it (laughs) but but, but, that is absolutely kind of the fundamental ongoing discussion uh that we have you know what is our relationship between you know kind of tradition and history and kind of modernity you know, and modernism, right? And where do we situate ourselves as artists and architects and, you know, as individuals within that? I can say that, you know, like the debate is by no means settled, but personally where I kind of see it is, and in a place like Paris, for example, or even take Halifax, for example, or Peoria, you know, that I just mentioned, you know, that have this kind of rich history, and, and, you know, but then also, you know, there's a drive, you know, um, not only to kind of modernize, you know, and this notion of progress and everything, but also it's becoming more and more apparent that we really need to start examining and reassessing, you know, kind of the situation in terms of colonialism, right? You know, and kind of the indigenous uh, communities that came before and had an impact on the development of the society. Long story short is I'd say for architecture, um, what what a city like Paris says to me and what a city like Halifax says to me is, you know, like I try to aspire to design and build 
um, kind of spaces and environments and structures that are provide good background, good solid fabric, you know, or um, in in a way, it's almost if you can build something that's robust and can be resilient and can be many things to many people over time mm-hmm. uh, to build a good generic. Um, when you look at Paris, that's exactly what Paris is, right? You know, they built those those um, structures, and when you go down down to the like the Champs Elysees, and you see the the dense urban fabric, you look at how that stood the test of time. You know, Rome's another great example. You know, those mm-hmm. buildings are thousands of years old but they still serve a purpose, you know, and um, they've become many things over the generations, right? So I I think that, you know, even as architect, I mean, I love modern architecture, don't get me wrong, you know, but I think that the successful modern architecture that I like um, is rooted in large part to the way that it provides um, a good environment and good background for kind of human activity to occur, right? And it can also change as we change as people and as a society, right? Right. So not necessarily um, tearing down the old and re reestablishing it with something new, but trying to figure out how the older stuff can fit into our current environment first. Is that it, it, exactly, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not at all, you know, suggesting that, you know, just because something is old doesn't mean that it's uh, necessarily good, you know, or worth saving. Right. You know, I think we have to be critical Mm. You know, and how we approach um, history, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, you know, like kind of the existing um, fabric that we're working within. Mm. But I think that we really, um, you know, I, I think that there's value in um, in, in thinking about uh, um, adaptive reuse uh, within the city um, and also, you know, the types of buildings that we're building if we are building new them well (laughs) you know i mean we have this 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 concept in architecture that we talk about a lot called you know about durability you know kind of durable building yeah what we're saying is it's just uh, i mean it is what it sounds it's like you know you're you're not building for you know a 25 or 30 year kind of investment window you know these aren't discardable objects that we're building you know like we have a responsibility increasingly so now you know with the climate change issues that we're facing right now, you know, we, we have to be smarter and more responsible with the way that we deal with what we have and uh, with the, with the stuff that we're, that we're proposing and building. Right. So it's, it's, it's looking at systems outside of just ourselves and, you know, looking at, at the buildings that we do is not just pretty objects. You know, I, I mean, it's, you know, certainly beauty is a big part of it. And we all, you know, I mean, we, we all react to that and we need that, you know, that's where artists, that's, that's where art comes in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but just something that's beautiful for its own sake. I'm not necessarily as interested in it at the long, you know, in the long view of things, if it's not, you know, kind of responsible um, in its, in its placement within, you know, kind of the larger picture. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how, if this applies to uh, architecture, but as a graphic designer, I've definitely taken the stance of, you know, sometimes my job isn't to make something. Function is always uh, is is always uh, paramount to me, but mm-hmm. you know there is also that aesthetic thing. But when I say aesthetic, I don't. It sometimes a lot of people talk about beauty, uh, but sometimes I feel like 
it's my job to make something not beautiful or ugly or scary or whatever the case may be, because in the situation, that might be what is called for. Does, does that exist in architecture? That's really interesting. And when you're saying, you know, I love that concept that you just mentioned about, uh, you know, like, you know, the, the idea of creating something ugly, right. Uh, but, but doing it intentionally, you know, to, for, you know, like for an artistic purpose, um, do you know, um, are you familiar with David Carson? Yes. Yeah. So like, I remember back, you know, this was like the nineties and when he was doing Ray Gun magazine. Yeah. Um, and I, unfortunately I got rid of all those old magazines. I should have held on to him because, but his idea, you know, about, you know, there were articles of his that he did that were almost unreadable, you know, from a typographic, you know, like on purpose, <laughs> right. You know, he would distress and he would photocopy, you know, like a, a hundred times. And he, you know, it, it was it was interesting and you know we really hadn't seen that kind of approach at least in kind of mod that was my kind of you know architects are always kind of uh wannabe graphic designers too <laughs> so you know i remember picking up that stuff and just being blown away that here's somebody that's kind of completely subverting everything that i had come to expect about you know graphic clarity and the grid and the swiss grid and all these uh, you know this this legibility um, you know, he kind of just threw it all out the window and said, no, actually, we're going to be experimental with how we use the medium. Um, so I, it, so in architecture, that exists, too. You know, like I think about there was a movement in the, the 90s when, when I was in school, actually, uh, deconstructivism was a big thing. So, you know, every building looked like it was you know, like it was a freeze frame of it exploding, you know, like these buildings flying apart, you know, and um, I mean, they're a nightmare to try to build. Uh, <laughs> keep water out of, but, but it was more, it, it was a, you know, it was a way of thinking about, you know, kind of culturally, um, you know, what, what's the message of our, you know, of our, um, of our profession, you know, like how can we explore I, artistic ideas and, and critical ideas, you know, within our discipline. And I always have loved that kind of approach where, you know, you, you, you know, like what if you set out to build something ugly? you know, but make us make a point about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that, that idea myself, because um, I'm, I'm definitely a function first uh, designer. And just there, there are points when I, I really think that that is something we need to, to think about and assess. So, okay. Dwayne, can I interrupt you though? Because I'd, I'd be curious for you to follow up a little bit on what you just said. You know, because you you do the clothing line, right? You know, yeah. so you have the Art Paisley clothing line, and you do you know fashion design. Yes. And so, this idea of function, right? Mm. Um, you know, we have a similar kind of a you know like a question within architecture about you know uh, form and function and the relationship yeah. of those two and which drives right. So, so as a, as a designer that's working with clothing in your case, how, you know, how do you balance those two? You know, like where, where's the, the, the limit of your investigation or is there a limit? You know, have you made things that are unwearable, I guess, you know, uh, like, have you, have you made like um, things that you would consider to be ugly for a reason? I, I'd be curious to hear that. So from my clothing standpoint, I cheat a little bit because I don't actually produce it myself. So 
I source my materials from people who can do that better than me. Um, right. But I'm very intentional about where and how I source. So like when I think about how a shirt hangs on a certain body type, I pick what I, 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 I source my materials based on that first. And then I think, okay, so where's the graphic going to sit? How large does it need to be to be seen across a room? Do I want it to be seen across a room or do I want someone to have to see it when they walk up close to you? These are the kind of things that I'm assessing. Sometimes like with some of the more hand-painted things I did, those were intentionally done to be very rough. And right. and uh, I wanted them to evoke more emotion than some of like my more modern minimal graphic stuff. Uh-huh. So that I take into consideration. Um, and where that mentality applies more is in my client work as a graphic designer where right. um, sometimes a client might want something and in my mind I'm thinking, well, you want the font to be that size or whatever, but your target audience is 50 to 65 or whatever. And the font size will be eight point. And I know that in that age bracket, vision is a little bit more challenged. So eight point type is not going to work. So we might want to increase the font size there. Um, You want to think about color contrast. You want to think about, you know, what kind of an illustration or photography we're going to use. So those kind of things I really stop and think about before any kind of like big aesthetic um, splash. And sometimes people are not interested in that, but those practical considerations really need to be made um, in order to actually make the project work. Right. So. Yeah. So those practical considerations, I mean, you've just, you've summarized kind of the, um, well, kind of the architect's dilemma perfectly. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, like when I get up in the morning and I look at, you know, kind of the projects I'm working on right now, you know, there's a large kind of functional overlay that has to be satisfied. You know, it, it needs to achieve the the goal that's, um, that's been set for the project, right? And it has to be code compliant you know it has to be safe it has to be affordable it has to be all of these things right so it's a constant um balancing act of you know like um how does that drive the art and how does the art drive the product when you're dealing with you know kind of functional constraints like in clothing like in you know communication like in graphic design for example just discussed like you know architecture is no different in that way it's just uh you know, there are certainly architects that are, you know, we call them paper architects, you, you know, that are, it's just purely hypothetical work, right? You know, it's, it's work that's not meant to ever be built. Uh, Lebius Woods is a, an amazing illustrator, just gorgeous drawings of these, these spaces that, you know, were never constructed, right? You know, so that, that, that it's important to have that, you know, kind of, you, you know, um, experimental, um, thinking within you know within the discipline but um at the end of the day it's you know for me the kind of the the challenge of integrating you know kind of an artistic concept um with you know like a functional uh program yeah uh, is where the the rubber kind of hits the road in a way and i think that's where you know when it works that's when i think uh, i derive you know kind of the the greatest pleasure uh and i can say oh okay that worked well 
um, that was a job where I kind of ticked all the boxes and satisfied everything, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm a hundred percent on board with that because it's, that's, that's, there was a point where as a designer, I, you start to enjoy the risk, the, um, the constraints and you find creativity within, okay, so how can I still make something interesting, even though I'm limited in this way? Um, Cause sometimes when you have like the sky's the limit, you can do anything. It's like, I don't know. It, it's, it, it's less fun sometimes. You just absolutely nailed it. <laughs> I, I could not agree more. And I think that, uh, yeah, it, it, it's like, I, I often say, you know, I'd be willing to accept the challenge if somebody came and said, you know, I've got an unlimited bank account, like just go for it. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, knowing me personally and how I work, uh, my first step there would be uh, creating constraint. You know, I I mean, I I think that that for me and and I think actually what you just said, 100 percent, like with, you know, working creatively within constraint, I think results in. Um, the best work. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, I, I just, you know, there's something about that well, because it's, you know, there's a pragmatism that's involved. There's, there's kind of a responsibility. There's a challenge to it, you know, but you know, at, at the end of the day, when you do that, you know, when you successfully, when you create something beautiful out of kind of impossible constraints, like that's true success in my mind. And, and that's what gives me the most joy. Uh, you know, like I said, I've never been in a situation where somebody came and said, just build me something beautiful. And, you know, here's an, you know, here's a, a blank check. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, if anybody listening out there is in, interested in that, I'm certainly happy <laughs> to, to accept the challenge. But, um, but you know, I realize at the same time that, you, you know, like that's not the world that we kind of live in. And, and you know, constraint is constraint can be good. And yeah. So you it. yeah. So you seem to have a great balance of, of skills. Do you find that architects may come into the industry having one particular skill and then you, or, or do, is it like, say if I wanted to become an architect, what, is there a one skill that I should con- concentrate on developing? Uh, that's a super question. And, um, uh, I'd say that um, everybody comes into it with different ideas, you know, including myself about what architecture is. I would say, um, you know, speaking personally, like you got to be able to draw <laughs> like, you know, and I and I constantly um, I think that that's a really, really important skill um, because I think that hand mind kind of uh, uh, connection and the, the ability to be able to, to abstract an idea quickly and communicate it effectively. I mean, this is where we get into kind of the graphic design as well. You know, it's like you need to be able to communicate clearly in a lot of different ways, right? You need to be able to communicate to the client. You know, I use drawing as a study. You know, I mean, you know, like the idea has to be represented in some way. And for me, the hand drawing is still the, the quickest and most effective way all the way down to at the end of the day, somebody's got to build it, right? And somebody yeah. needs to finance it. So there needs to be many different ways of kind of representing, um, you know, these abstract ideas and making them real. So um, I'd say that anybody thinking about architecture, drawing is your friend and drawing is an essential tool, but, you know, there's 
so much that I've learned, you know, in my, you know, my 25 years of working as an architect, that there's so many ways that you can go um, with an architectural education. I'd say an art, an art education in general. Um, I look at like a lot of my classmates that I graduated with, you know, I would say that probably over half of them are no longer doing architecture, but they're using the skills that we acquired in architecture school you know, in different industries and in different ways, right? Uh, so I, I think that there's something kind of um, this idea of the, the the Renaissance thinker a little bit. You know, it's I, I often say that you know architects. I aspire to be an expert generalist. <laughs> you know, it's like I have a I have like a a decent understanding of a lot of different things, and it's all about like kind of bringing those all together. So yeah. you got to kind of be a you know you have to be you know. And now that I'm on my own which has been for the last five years, I'm realizing, well, shoot, I kind of need to be better. I need to apply my architectural thinking to how I run a business. You know, like, why is it any different that, you know, like setting up a business um, can't be, you know, an artistic pursuit, right? Um, so it's, and, and I'm full disclosure, I'm still not very good at it, <laughs> but um, you see, so I, that's a long-winded way of saying that, I think architecture is many things for many people. And I, I, I guess when I, I, I teach um, over at Dalhousie at the School of Architecture, uh, yeah. building technology courses, and I guess one thing I like to try to impart to my students is, uh, you know, if there's an unlimited amount of information that you're kind of responsible for, but you, you need to kind of, you, you need to focus, pick your focus, and then, you know, kind of find a trajectory that works for you. And, you know, there's a place for, wherever you think you want to be within the field. And, but it's, it's really a matter of kind of understanding that and defining that. Hmm. Interesting. Like, uh, actually that's exactly kind of what I pictured architects being. So in a lot of ways, you're, you're an expert of, let me me step, step that back. If, In order for you, so this is uh, more leading into how you operate your business, whereas uh-huh. when I picture it, I'm thinking you could be brought onto a project at multiple different stages, but ultimately you're being looked for in terms of, you know, your, your idea can't work unless there's the right builder involved, the right engineers, the right the amount of money, the right location, like all of these things need to be kind of considered and brought together. And you're a great person to sort of envision that, would you say? Yeah, uh, absolutely. um, You you have to be a good collaborator, Mm. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, like, uh, and, you know, you have to be able to synthesize, you know, a lot of different aspects and, um, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, it's, um, I don't think architects, you know, at least traditionally, I don't think we've done a very, very good job of actually describing and explaining who we are and what we do, you know? So I think a lot of people would, would go into a project, not even understanding that maybe an architect is required or necessary, you know? And so I, I think part of the challenge, you know, and certainly, you know, going out on my own, a part of the challenge has been, you know, how do I, you know, how do I articulate my value? You know, how do I communicate my value and what I bring to a project? And so what I found, you know, kind of working on my own is that um, 
they're all very collaborative projects and they're all very different projects. You know, like I, I can drop into a project at really any point, you know, sometimes it's only in construction. You know, um, I have another company called skin and bones where I do basically it primarily is kind of envelope consulting, you know, like the exterior of the building. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but then there's the Eric Stotts architect portion where it's kind of the more traditional, you know, kind of design bid build scenario. You know, there's uh, the Stillwell Beer Garden is still, I think, my best project. <laughs> you know, that's my legacy project, right? Oh, wow. I, like, I love that place. It's and a I think that, space. But when you look at it, like how it all came together, it was super organic. You know, we had a really, really great builder, Andrew Flood, and, you know, uh, um, the folks at Stillwell. Um, we had Andrew Hunt doing the graphics. You know, we had um, a tent makers from New Brunswick that did the canopy. Um, uh, company cts containers and dartmouth did the container you know so it was all it was i was just really kind of like putting all the pieces together right and and that, that for me is kind of the um that's the ideal that, that's my happy spot <laughs> when i'm able to work in a project like that that kind of just leverages everybody's kind of expertise and you're bringing in you know people that are all committed and talented yeah yeah so it, like I don't even know if I want to go here, but go <laughs> I just finished construction on my, my house. Yeah. We didn't work with an architect. Uh-huh. Like why, why would we need to work with an architect or should we have worked? We, we worked with a builder. So I'm assuming our builder, our builder has architects that they work with, but would we need to, if the builder's already managing that, would it be of value to us to bring in an architect for cons consultation in a situation like that? Well, I'm going to be completely self-interested and say, absolutely. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but, but seriously, though, um, uh, that's a really good question. And I'd say that, um, uh, you know, no, you don't necessarily always need an architect. Um, and I know I'm probably going to get a lot of grief for saying that, but, um, uh, in your case, uh, uh, was it a renovation? No, it was, a from completely from scratch build. Uh, well, I can say one thing. I know there, there's a lot of really good builders out there and I work with a lot of them and in Halifax, we're very fortunate. We have quite a few, you know, very, very talented people out there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, the value of an architect in that situation is, you know, uh, the way that it's set up is, you know, we are um, an advocate for the owner is kind of our, you know, you know, kind of our job. And I'm not saying or suggesting that, you know, good builders aren't, mm. um, but it depends, uh, you know, also on just kind of the scope and the ambition of your project, right? Like if you want to do just, you know, kind of a modest straight ahead, good, solid building, you know, code wise, you're not required to have an architect. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I know many builders that would be absolutely capable of delivering. Well, I should ask you, are you happy with your, um, with your house? Yeah, overall I am. Um, okay. and like I, the reason why we ended up not feeling like we needed an architect was basically because they had a selection of, of, I, I hate to use the term template, but nope. they had like building a house, you know, uh, model homes that they said, well, you could choose this one or this one or this one. Yep. And uh, we picked one and made some modifications based on our lifestyle. And they said, sure, we can go ahead. We can do that. And um, 
So we went, we went ahead that way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, overall I'm happy, but I could, I could see what you mean in terms of like, it would be nice to have that person that's almost like in between the builder to say, advocate, advocate for design in a way that maybe builders don't always advocate. And our, the builder has a great aesthetic, don't get me wrong, but I see that um, it would have been interesting, an interesting experience to kind of have that person to to kick it back and forth with on, on the build. Uh, you're you're absolutely right you know and this i you know like the 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 templates or you know kind of the model home concept you know at some point or another it's likely that there was an architect involved in that right you know like somebody drew those plans right and you know and and you know you look at dwell magazine and you look at all kind of the prefab that exists there yeah like um there's you know there is there is there's a lot of um architect involvement in a lot of that process um but i think what you just mentioned I, I think just that opportunity to to kind of further, uh, you know, kind of articulate what your needs and wants are, you know, and um, and have that, you know, kind of, you know, artistically incorporated uh, also with a with a, you know, with a mind to budget. Yes. You know, like I, I'm, we're always working within that constraint. Right. You know, like or at least if you're a responsible architect, you are, yeah. you know, you got to You got to respect your clients budgetary constraints. Right. So. Um, but I think that's where there's a lot of value having an architect involved early on is just, you know, they've been through it. You know, I, I've worked, you know, I've never worked on a project without a budget, <laughs> you know, oh, so, yeah. like, you know, and I also understand, you know, from the builder's perspective, you know, I know what their, you know, their challenges and their constraints are and where you run into problems is when you as the owner, you know, maybe you decide like a little bit into it, that there's something that you absolutely need to change. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, well, while we're here, why don't we do this and that and whatever. And that that's where things can come off the rails really quickly. So to have someone like an architect that's been involved from the start that understands your needs and your requirements and is able to, and understands the process of making those changes and, you know, kind of communicating that information to the builder. So they don't lose their shirts, mm. clear, uh, uh, clear knowledge and, uh, you know, an understanding about, you know, um, how, how it's going to change, you know, what they had originally quoted or what they had originally set out to do. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I was trying to articulate. Yes. Because inevitably there are things that pop up and you're like, Oh, that's not going to work. Like we thought it was going to work. What exactly. do we do? Uh, and you don't know how it's going to impact your budget sometimes until after the fact <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, yeah. And I mean, the change order, you know, that, that's the, that's the death of the budget right there. You, you know, I mean, and they happen. Um, and, um, it's, uh, I think it's interesting, you know, I think that the whole, the HGTV culture, um, <laughs> yeah has really, you know, I, I think in a way on, on the good side, kind of on the kind of the, democ- the democratic side of things, it's, you know, it's enabled people or it's empowered people to kind of make decisions on their house and, and where they live. Right. And, yeah. And, you know, I think, and that's great. Like I'm, I'm all for, you know, kind of accessible architecture, you know, I, I mean, everybody should afford to, well, everybody should have a place. <laughs> everybody yes. should have a, a dwelling that suits their needs. Right. Um, but uh, I think that the D 
danger or kind of the, the you know the flip side of all those programs is um, it's entertainment, <laughs> you know, and you're yeah. looking at this stuff in a really carefully edited vacuum that don't it, you don't see the issues of the problems, right? You know, like you don't get a sense of the process. Um, yeah. And, you know, maybe that would be really boring for people. <laughs> maybe that's the reason they don't have those shows. This old house is the only one I can think of that actually was even close to being the reality. You know, you're, you're talking to expert builders and they're talking about like all of the, the nuts and bolts and the minutia about putting a house together. But, you know, like I, I, just, I think that's kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit. It's like people look at that and say, well, geez, I'll just completely transform my whole living situation. Um, I'll get a builder and we're, we're off to the races. And there's a lot of steps in there that are missing. <laughs> yeah, they make it look very easy. So like, oh, you just knock that wall out or blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not really always that simple. No, especially when that wall happens to be holding up your raptors, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, oh, is it low bearing? Is it, there are just yeah. so many considerations that a person has to make uh, that aren't, aren't always noted in those shows and but hey guilty as charged we watched them all the time to get inspiration yeah. for when we were starting the process um and then you start the process and you're like oh, okay <laughs> i see <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe we should consult a pro but um I, i'm i'm happy to hear that you're happy with it though yeah, yeah we're, we're happy with it so that's good um so how do you find clients generally is it mostly word of mouth um, it, it has been, I've come at the, at the industry in kind of a different way. Like I, I don't do a lot of residential work or I hadn't in the past. Like most of my experience kind of right out of school was in firms that did, you know, kind of institutional, um, and, you know, kind of educational work. So, uh, you know, office buildings, uh, lab buildings, um, uh, high schools, uh, some university work. So, much larger projects with, you know, usually institutional clients, right? It wasn't until, quite honestly, I started my own firm about five years ago and, you know, went down to a team of one, <laughs> you know, and some, and some, you know, kind of assistance as needed that I, you know, the scale of the projects, you know, necessarily got a, a little bit smaller and more, um, and more focused. Mm. Uh, the clients up until like five years ago, uh, they were institutional clients. There was always kind of a, there was a professional um, kind of layer that, you know, or process that was, that was inserted between, you know, the architect and the owner, you know, it was very contractual and, you know, everything's all spelled out and everybody kind of knows their place. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a real process to everything, right? I'm not saying that there wasn't any challenge, you know, and that you're not dealing with complex issues. I mean, it's still there, but it's that air of kind of uh, professionalism uh, that kind of insulates you a little bit. Uh, mm. It's not personal, really, you know. Um, but when you get into residential work, and like I still am astounded with, you know, a, a lot of my colleagues and friends that do only residential or primarily residential like that intimacy of the client architect relationship, you know, you're in charge at this point of um, people's livelihoods. And um, it's a, it's, it's a big responsibility. And um, I'll be completely honest, you know, it's a scary one to me sometimes. And I, you know, I take it really seriously, but it, it's, it changes the, 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 the situation and the dynamic, I think um, a lot. 
when you're dealing with clients, you know, and you're dealing with life savings and you're dealing with kind of futures and you're dealing with, you know, people, you know, like you're, you're really understanding like their, their needs and their wants and their idiosyncrasies and, you know, their difficulties. Like, uh, you know, let's be honest, is that intimacy is it, that's the, been the biggest kind of like learning curve and challenge for me, you know, as a professional, like I get along great with people, you know, in my personal life, it's like, Oh, it's easy. You know, like, uh, you know, I love it. You know, we're all friends and everything's good. But the minute it, there's that professional overlay and your, your role changes within that relationship, it's um, let's just say I'm just, you know, trying to constantly improve and, and understand, you know, that dynamic. You and me both, brother. Um, it's. <laughs> I feel like at this point I should know what I'm doing, but like, <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, people are all you know. Like, um, I, I try to think about you know, you know, like put myself in. You know, like would I be a good client? Right. You know? like, I, I can see that I can be. I could probably be a very difficult client in some aspects. You know. Um, so it's it's always trying to. Uh, you know, as my wife always says, you know, kind of assume the innocence <laughs> just and just go at it as, you know, as as collaboratively as possible and not come in up riding on my high horse and um, just try to listen as best I can. And um, uh, that being said, you know, I, I don't go out of my way to try to find difficult clients. <laughs> you know, I, I think I've developed a pretty good sense and I've been very fortunate that a lot of work has come just through my my uh, interactions, um, you know, in the industry here for 15 years, you know, and so, I, you know, I've been very grateful that a lot of the work has kind of found its way to me and I haven't had to really aggressively um, pound the pavement. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that that'll exist forever, so I'm not necessarily, you know, resting on my laurels, but it's been good, you know, like when there's that kind of layer of, um, familiarity you know when people are coming to you that you already have like a a previous exposure experience with yeah um that's that's that you know honestly that's where i love to be and i and i hope to continue to be you know like because it's because uh, then you know you're kind of like aligned you know mm -hmm. and you're on the right track and you, you know you can kind of a proceed you know kind of in a unified way together yeah so how does it work for you? Like, so for instance, for me, if a client wants to hire me, they might say, I want a poster for an event. Mm -hmm. Say, okay, the poster is going to cost you $500. I used to charge by the hour. Now I just give a flat fee. Is that kind of how you would work too? It's, um, it just depends on the project, uh, you know, so, so like in the, you know, in like kind of my, my previous life, you know, in like the larger firms and everything, I, I mean, it's not uncommon to, you know, you would provide a fixed fee, uh, based on, you know, kind of some industry standard, uh, percentages, right. Usually it's a percentage of construction costs, uh, okay. not going too far down into it, but, you know, so in those types of, you know, like, let's say I'm, you know, designing a, you know, a $25 million lab building, for example, yeah. it would be, you know, they would want a fixed price typically. And, you know, the architect would, you know, they'd get all their sub consultants on board and you'd submit a proposal and they, you know, you'd give a very detailed kind of breakdown of when payments occur and it's based on this percentage of construction costs and all that. Mm. Where I'm at now, 
it's, you, you know, a lot of times the scope is really nebulous when you're getting into these projects, especially when you're kind of entering into something where you really can't envision what that final product is going to be. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because it seems like it's very, very difficult to, get, to give a standard rate when anything could happen in a project. And so I found that just um, like for me and, you know, I've learned this, you know, from uh, some of my mentors as well. The easiest way is to kind of work hourly um, up to the point where you kind of um, have established, you know, in architecture, there's different phases. I'd say hourly through at least schematic design, Mm -hmm. you know, when hourly to the point when you have something that you can actually get a cost, you know, like get an estimate and, and start, you know, is this starting to fulfill the client's requirements? You know, you get a general sense of the size. You start to think a little bit about the materiality of, you know, what's it going to be built out of um, until you get to that point, you know, and especially if the client comes to you and says, well, we really, we really don't know what our program needs to be. You know, we don't know like what rooms we need. We don't know where those rooms are in relation to each other. You know, we don't know where the building goes on site. We don't even know if we need a building. Right? <laughs> yeah. it, it, you can't put a, a number on something that you don't, that, that doesn't exist. So I, I think the balance of, you know, kind of hourly to a point and then kind of fixed fee once you're into kind of construction drawings and mm-hmm. kind of site review um, is the way that I tend to operate for the most Very part. Very interesting. Interesting. Okay, uh, I like that you taught me something new again. I, I didn't know how that worked. Interesting. Well, I, I don't know how, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out if it works for me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so don't take it to the bank. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that it is a challenge. You know, sometimes it is a challenge, uh, you know, and I, it, you, you run across this sometimes. It's, uh, well, I know that you do as an artist, uh, that, you know, that's trying to make a living doing this is, you know, sometimes there's an, there's this real misperception about the value that artists and architects provide when there's not an end product. So, you know, the fact that, you, you know, you submit a, an invoice for a concept, you know, it's for your work to develop a design, right? Yeah. I've been fortunate that people haven't bought, but I know people bought, you know, they, they, you know, somebody gets a bill for, you know, a couple grand for some design sketches and they're like, well, I, you know, I... I decided not to go ahead with this project. So why should I pay, you know? This has happened uh, to me recently. <laughs> no, it didn't. Well, I'm not surprised, you know, and, and, and it happens, right? Like, so there's this, there's this, uh, you, you know, this constant need as professionals, as art professionals to, you know, like we need to fight for that, um, uh, you know, for our value, you know, yeah. and like, and, you know, it is, you know, it's our livelihood, right? So that's, um, and like I said, I've been very fortunate. You know, most people that I've worked with have understood that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not everybody, <laughs> you know? So, you, you know, you take your body blows and you learn from it. But, um, you know, this notion that it's, you know, that something that you, that's intangible um, actually is valuable is, mm-hmm. is that's the challenge, I think, is, you know, to, um, you know, to be compensated for doing that, you know, like getting paid for your thought and your, and your, your, um, you know, kind of, uh, well, your artistic action, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they're paying for. They're not paying, they're, you know, the years of experience and education and training and everything else that we've uh, um, brought to the table, they're paying, they're paying for that. Uh, and, um, 
yeah, it doesn't always end up being a project that they decide to go ahead with. But if they have engaged us, they must pay us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes like, you know, like there may be situations and I think, you know, back to my earlier point about, you know, kind of acting responsibly, you know, and building responsibly. Sometimes the responsible thing to do is nothing at all. <laughs> you know, uh, like, yeah. And, and so like, if I come to the table and, you know, somebody says, well, I kind of am thinking that I'm going to do this on this site. And, you know, you, you kind of look at the situation and you realize, well, actually there's, you know, there's no good reason to build here, you know, or, you know, it, it's, it's too difficult or there's something that you hadn't anticipated, you know, mm. that's, um, that's valuable. You yep. know, that's work, uh, you know, so, you know, like, um, the idea that you could be talking yourself out of a project um, seems crazy, but you know, I think to act responsibly, you, you, you may do that, right? Yeah. So Eric, I'm about to get kicked out of this room. Uh, <laughs> okay. Exciting that you want to promote or plug. Uh, I'm sorry. I missed that last part. Oh, do you have anything like exciting that you want to promote or like, you know, talk about? Well, I, um, uh, you know, I, I did mention, you know, the, the Stillwell Beer Garden, like, you know, I really love that project, but I'm really excited um, uh, to be working with um, uh, Benjamin Bridge Winery right now okay. on some renovations that are happening um, in Gasparo at their, at their winery down in the valley. Nice. Uh, and this is one of the, you know, this could be a whole other episode, but long story short is, you know, it's kind of one of those dream projects, honestly, you know, it's got it's challenging. You know, it's a beautiful site. It's a great client. Um, very, very talented, um, you know, kind of group of people, um, wonderful product. Um, you know, it, it, it ticks all the boxes and it, and it's one of those, it's, it's one of those collaborative, uh, projects with constraints, but unbounded potential. So it, that's kind of where, um, and, and there's several projects like that I got on the go. So it's, um, uh, I'm, I'm grateful and, um, yeah, I just want to keep cranking it. Sweet. And how can my people find you on the internet? Um, I just bought a domain <laughs> five years in. Um, I, and so uh, don't judge the website yet. I'm still trying to get it up and running. But if you went to um, www.ericstotsarchitect.com, you can okay. find me there. Sweet. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been great. And I will talk to you later. Dwayne, it's been a real pleasure. I, I, thanks so much for um, getting me on the show. And then keep it up. I, I think what you're doing is fantastic. Thank you so much for listening to the Art Pays Me podcast. Thank you to Langy Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at artpaysme.com or at artpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.